Amen. Those are wonderful worship songs. The one before, the fairest Lord Jesus. I love that last verse. I'm just going to read it. Beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations, Lord of all the nations, Son of God and Son of Man, glory and honor, praise, adoration, now and forevermore be thine. Amen. Praise God. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to do a deep dive into the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and how it relates to meeting man's greatest need. So again, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read the entire Lord's Prayer, but we're going to focus on verse 12 today. So I'm going to start at verse 9. Word of the Lord says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word now, Father, we pray that you would speak to your people. God, I pray as I preach your word, Lord, that I would speak that which you have spoken, Lord, and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would use your word, Lord, to do your your will, your work, your sovereign way. We thank you. We give you all honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's been uh, a delayed uh, debate throughout the generations uh, as to what are mankind's greatest needs. You know, if you spend just a little time on the internet, you're going to get a bunch of different answers as to what is man's greatest need. And I just want to ask you today, what's your greatest need? If you were to ask, or if I were to ask 50 different people the question, uh, what is your greatest need, you're probably, we'd probably get 50 different answers. Your greatest need right now may be finding the right job opportunity. It may be finding the right spouse. It may be rescuing a loved one. It may be getting out of a, a trial or a persecution or suffering that you're going through. That may be your greatest need. Uh, children, what's your greatest need? Your greatest need may be uh, trying to deal kindly with another sibling or struggling with your schoolwork. Uh, you know, most of our lives as Americans revolve around fulfilling what we think is our current, most pressing, greatest need. And everything in our lives tend to revolve around fulfilling what our greatest need is. And that's how most Americans and most people in our culture live their life. So, what is mankind's greatest need? Well, if you ask our secular humanistic uh, worldview in our culture, you're going to get a lot of different answers, not biblical. Just one that I came across I thought I'd share with you. Uh, Self-proclaimed motivational speaker Tony Robbins lists uh, these six basic needs that are man's greatest needs that everybody, he says, tries to fulfill. Uh, the first thing is certainty or assurance of the future. Next is variety, something new stimulus, changes. Next is significance, feeling unique, 
or important or special. This is probably one of the greatest needs that people seek after to fulfill. Uh, Next, he says, number four is love or connection, a sense of closeness with one another. Number five is growth, growing in knowledge or understanding. And number six is contribution, he says, having a sense of service, sense of focus on helping others. Now, now, while there's truth to all of these, I think in some aspect we tend to veer and, and seek fulfillment in these areas. But none of these, nor any of the other secular humanistic answers, and maybe even many so-called Christian psychologist answers, uh, hits the mark. None of these identify what man's greatest need is. Jesus, in our text today, addresses what I believe to the, be the very heart of the Lord's Prayer, And what I believe to be the heart of the Sermon on the Mount and the very heart of the gospel. And mankind's greatest need is this, is to be reconciled with his maker. To be reconciled to God, which only comes through the forgiveness of sins. That's what mankind's greatest need is. This need is greater than the need to feel loved. This need is greater than the need to feel significance or having assurance of the future this need is much more greater than that this is greater than the need that mankind has to be in good health to have a good family or to have financial peace and rightly understood this need is even greater than mankind's physical needs water food drink even the air that you breathe As we dive into this next petition, the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those, uh, forgive our debtors. I hope as we've gone through this study that you begin to see just how revolutionary this prayer is. This prayer, rightly understood and applied, is what will bring true revival in our land. This prayer, as Albert Moeller once put it, quote, turns the world upside down. Now, there might be things that I don't agree with Mr. Moeller on, but he hits the nail on the head when it comes to this prayer. He says that in this prayer, quote, principalities and powers hear their fall. Dictators are told their time is up. Might will indeed be made right, and truth and justice will prevail. The kingdoms of this world will all pass, giving way to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, let me be clear. This prayer in its mere form, or this prayer by its mere words, has no revolutionary effect, has no effect for revival, because this prayer is uttered in churches everywhere across this land. What I mean is that this prayer, rightly understood, this prayer knowing the truth in each element of this prayer is what will bring about revival. So this prayer has no power in its form in and of itself. Uh, But the truths, which can take a lifetime to understand, is where I believe the power will come from. We've gone through uh, each of the petitions, and we're on number five. When we understand and, and rightly know the great privilege of calling God, our Father, that's how the prayer opens up, our Father 
who is in heaven. When we understand the great privilege that we have of calling God our Father through the doctrine of adoption, when we understand that God has done and will do all things for the sake of his name, and that he will continue to grow his kingdom on earth through the power of the gospel by means of the church until it's penetrated the entire world as salt and light, and mankind no longer seeks his own will but God's will, when we understand uh, that to proclaim that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him, when we can learn to rely on the daily substance and providence of God, we don't need to worry about tomorrow. When we understand these great truths that our Lord gives us in the Lord's Prayer, it'll affect your life. When we understand these great truths and can pray them not just by saying the words, but when we can pray them from our heart, knowing and understanding these doctrines, revival will come into your life, revival will come into your home, and revival will come across our churches in America. So today, we look at Jesus as he addresses what, man's, what is man's greatest need. And he addresses this right after he addresses man's greatest physical need, the need for food, which we all need. We can't go too long without food. He addresses that in the fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. After addressing our greatest physical need, he now addresses our greatest spiritual need. And that is forgiveness in Christ. Jesus, back in chapter 4 of Matthew, quoting from Deuteronomy 8, while Israel was in the wilderness, said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God said in Deuteronomy 8 that he humbled the Israelites by letting them go hungry and feeding them with manna which they did not know. And he says he did this, that he might make them understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. God, by the command of his word, is the ultimate source by which we live. So as important as food is to us, Jesus now in the Lord's Prayer moves from physical food, physical bread, to the everlasting bread, the bread of life, which only comes through the forgiveness of sins. So he says in verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So there's three things I want to show you in this text. The first thing is this. When we pray this petition, and again, when I say pray, I don't just mean say it. I mean when we can say it from the heart and truly understand the implications of this great truth. When we pray this petition, we are acknowledging our own greatest need, which I already said is to be reconciled to God. This is man's greatest need, to be, peace, to be at peace with God. You can have all your so-called needs met, but if you don't have Christ, you're absolutely bankrupt. For what is it if a man gains the whole world and lose his own soul? We need to have this kind of view when dealing with ourselves. If we have no peace with God, friends, we have nothing. 
We also need to have that view with unbelievers. Unbelievers can seem fulfilled in so many things, but if they are without Christ, they are bankrupt. They have absolutely nothing. Reconciliation with God comes only through the forgiveness of sins. And we're told here that we are to pray to God to forgive us of our sins, to forgive us of our debts. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2 says that your sins have separated you from God. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You see, man's greatest need comes from man's greatest problem. So we all have problems in our life. Some may seem bigger than others. But our greatest problem is not what you hear in the mainstream media today. It's not so-called social inequality. It's not so-called systematic racism. Man's greatest problem is not even leftist Marxism, growing tyrannical governments, or that not-so-far-fetched conspiracy theory friend. Those may be the fruit, but those aren't man's greatest problems. Man's greatest problem, friends, is sin. Our greatest problem is sin. Your greatest problem is sin. Young children, your greatest problem in your life is sin. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that? Whether you're a believer or not, do you believe that your greatest problem in your life is sin? See, we live in a world today that doesn't want to address sin. We live in a world today that wants to downplay sin or, better yet, don't even talk about sin because it's offensive, because it'll cause people to, to be moving away from God. We want to we wanna attract people to God, so don't talk about sin, hell. Don't say things are wrong. Uh, don't say lifestyles are wrong. We want to bring them to God, but friends, you cannot bring somebody to God if you do not deal with sin. That is the greatest problem in mankind's life, even if you're a believer. Uh, you ought to agree with that statement in your deepest heart you ought to be able to agree with me if you're in christ that your greatest problem on a day-to-day basis is the remaining effects and taint of sin in your life jesus tells us here to pray and ask god to forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors so i believe this is the heart of the gospel and the heart of the lord's prayer So what does he mean by this? Forgive us. And what debts is he talking about here? Well, to forgive, this word is most often used for forgiving. It literally means to send away or to put away, to put off, to let go, or to let alone. And it says we ought to pray. He says, forgive us of our debts. Now, I haven't mentioned this much throughout the prayer, but if you notice, most of these petitions are in the what form. Not in the singular form. He doesn't say, pray, forgive me of my debts. He says what? Forgive us of our debts. Now notice that 
Jesus, the perfect son of God, that's a prayer he would never have to pray, by the way. Uh, so I've mentioned this before, but this isn't the Lord's prayer. This is the disciples' prayer. This is how we pray. Jesus doesn't need to ask forgiveness, but he tells us we ought to. So he says, pray, forgive us of our sins. So this is an indication here that God is well pleased when we pray together as Christians, when we pray together as a church. And listen to this, praying together in repentance. There ought to be times in our lives and in the church life that we pray, God, forgive us of our sins. At home, you should be praying with your children, Lord, forgive us of our sins. So we pray that God would pardon, would let go. And here in Matthew, he uses this word. He says debts. Uh, Forgive us our debts. Now, this is a unique word. It's used only two times in the whole New Testament. It's a noun. And it literally means that which is legally due or legally owed. The other time it's used in the New Testament is in uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. And that's the same word, but as debt. So the idea that Paul is using uh, in the Romans passage, he's, uh, he's given his treatise on justification by faith alone, and he's saying, look, if somebody works and they're paid, that payment is not a favor, it's not a gift, it's not a, a grace, it's a debt, it's a debt owed. When you go to work and you get paid, you're not, oh, thank you so much for the favor that you gave me by paying me what I'm due. No, you made a contract with your employer. You work this and they pay this. Paul is making that argument in Romans chapter 4 uh, that salvation is not earned by works, lest any man boast. Uh, but he says in verse 5, but to the one who does not work in terms of earning salvation, but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, he says his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so you see the difference there. So this word is used in Matthew here, chapter 6, forgive us our debts. And in the parallel passage in Luke, uh, the the text says, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So they're used, two words here used to point to the same thing, that we're asking God to forgive us of our sins. But here in Matthew, the idea is that when we sin, We are accumulating a debt. So in the same way Paul uses it in Romans 4, when we sin, we accumulate a debt that's owed to God for our sins. It's like your bank account. You're accumulating money in your bank account. Uh, Each time you sin as an unbeliever, you are accumulating debt that's owed to God. Romans 2 verse 5 says, because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So to the unbeliever, when you accumulate debt, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, in the day of judgment, when Christ comes to judge. So this debt that you've occurred, incurred from your sin 
is to be paid, repaid, by a suffering, a rightly due penalty. The debt that we accumulate cannot be paid for by your own good works. The debt that we owe God for our sins can only be paid for the, by either the everlasting punishment in hell or by the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, every sin that has ever been committed since the fall of Adam will be paid for. Every sin that's ever been sinned since the fall of Adam, Adam is a debt to God and will be paid for. Either yourself in eternity in hell or was paid for in full upon the cross by Jesus Christ. This is the great work that Christ did in the covenant of redemption, that he would live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God, the life that you and I must live if we want to earn our own salvation. And then he died the death that you and I deserve for our sins. And all those who trust in him, God imputes Christ's righteousness to him and takes his sin and imputes it to Christ upon the cross. You see, we are all, if we're in Christ, saved by works, just not our own works. We're saved by the works of Christ, and that comes through faith and faith alone. When we pray for God to forgive or to put away or to send our sins away, we are invoking this great work of redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are acknowledging as believers that God has fulfilled our greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God. Friends, our sin debt, your sin debt, is a debt and it must be dealt with. If you're in Christ, he has fully expiated or fully canceled your debt. He's fully extinguished your sin debt, wiped it away for all time. So if you're in Christ, praise God, he has fulfilled your greatest need. And friends, you realize that only is by his grace that God did not owe you. If you're in Christ, God did not owe you any ounce of salvation. God could have left you in your sin, friends. He could have left you in continually blinded state to where you would never call upon the name of the Lord. That is God's grace. By his grace, he has reconciled you to himself. See, we don't, we don't understand that in our culture today because, again, sin is so downplayed and the holiness of God is downplayed and man's goodness is upplayed and the holiness of God is ignored or downplayed. But when we fully realize how sinful we are and how much debt we've accumulated for our sins and we realize how holy and righteous God is the creator of all things, it deepens our love for him. When we understand he on the cross canceled out the debt that you and I deserve to suffer under his wrath. I love what our confession, how it puts it in paragraph 3 of chapter 11. It says, Christ by his obedience and, de- and death, excuse me, Christ by his obedience and death did 
fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their steed the penalty due to them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. Praise God. It's like what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Or like in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When did Jesus cancel your debt? When you said the sinner's prayer came to Christ? No. Jesus canceled your debt on the cross, ladies and gentlemen. That's why he said to Telestai, it is finished. He didn't say it is a potential sacrifice. No, he said it is finished, and that's what the Colossians passage says. It says, having canceled out, past tense, the certificate of debt. That word in the Greek literally meant a piece of paper that had debt listed on it. He canceled it out. And that certificate of debt, it says, consisted of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Friends, if you're in Christ, listen to me. You had a certificate of debt. That debt was all of your sin. All of, all of the times that you did what God said not to do. And all those times that you didn't do what God says you must do. All those idle words that you spoke. All those sins of the heart. The anger towards someone else which God says murder. The lust of the heart towards another. All of those sinful thoughts that you had. That you'd be embarrassed if people saw. All of those are sin that accumulated into debt that consisted of decrees against you. It was hostile towards you because it was God's holiness and his wrath that he shows upon sin. And it says those hostile decrees against you, he has taken it out of the way. Praise God. Having nailed it to the cross. This is why Peter said in Acts 3.19, he said, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. That's what God does. When he forgives us, he wipes away your sin. Uh, He removes them as far as the east to the west. Okay? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we pray this petition as believers, we're acknowledging our greatest need, the need for forgiveness, that God has met that need. Now, notice the rest of the petition. It says, as we also have forgiven our debtors, as we also have forgiven those who have sinned against us. Now, there's been great controversy and debate throughout generations on what exactly God meant by this. Is forgiving others a prerequisite or requirement before God forgives us? Many solid theologians have wrestled with this throughout the ages 
And we're going to look at this more in the upcoming weeks. Because if you look at verse 14 and 15, he says it seems pretty clear. If you forgive others, your father will forgive you. If you don't forgive others, then your father will not forgive you. I believe it was the uh, reformer uh, Zwingli early in his ministry called this a mountain which he could not climb. He could not comprehend and deal with this idea. Right now, today, we're only going to look at the first part of this petition, but I just wanted to address it. We're going to dive into that more in the upcoming weeks. But suffice to say for now, the passage says, as we forgive our debtors, or as we forgive those who sin against us. It does not say, forgive us of our debts because we have forgiven our debtors. You see the difference? We are saved by faith alone, not by works. It doesn't say, forgive us of our sins, God, because I have forgiven those who have sinned against us. You see the difference? It says, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So even though it's not a prerequisite to God's forgiveness, there is a parallel between God's forgiveness and our regenerate hearts and the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive others who have sinned against us. But again, we're going to look at that more in the upcoming weeks when we dive into verse 14 and 15. So again, the first point, when we pray this petition, we are acknowledging our greatest need. Second point, when we pray this petition, we are confessing that we are sinners in continual need of forgiveness. When we pray this petition, we are confessing that we are sinners in continual need of forgiveness. Now, this may sound similar to the first point, but there is a slight variation. The first point is aimed at our justification or our reconciliation, which comes by faith alone. Here, the point is aimed at our sanctification, Meaning those who are in Christ, we still have a continual need of confession and seeking the Lord for forgiveness. Now when I say we are sinners, I'm not saying as those in Christ are sinners in an unbelieving way. But us, those of us in Christ, we still do sin, right? So I got no problem saying that I'm a sinner. I'm just trying to clarify and differentiate between <clears throat> excuse me, the two. But yes, those of us in in Christ still have a continual need of confession and seeking forgiveness uh, from God. Now, I want to remind you of the context of the Lord's Prayer. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1. This will give us some insights into what Jesus is saying here. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. This is sort of the umbrella verse that covers all, almost all of the chapter up until verse 24, and that's spiritual pride. This is the broad context of the Lord's Prayer. Do not do your righteousness by men to be noticed by them. Do not have spiritual pride and try to show people how godly you are. And then if we narrow in on the context of the Lord's Prayer, uh, if you look at like verses 5 through 7, he says, Don't be like the hypocrites, how they pray to be noticed of men. But in verse 6, he says, 
Go into your inner room. Pray with an audience of one, focusing on praying to God and God alone and not worry about those that are around you. And then in verse 7, he says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans who just babble on and on because they think that the more words they say, the more chances they're going to be heard. Don't, don't be like them, he says, for your father knows what you have need before you ask, verse 8. So then he says, then, therefore, pray in this way. Don't be like that. Pray this way. And the fifth petition, when we pray that the Lord would forgive us of our sins, it reminds us of our spiritual need for daily forgiveness and cleansing of sin. This petition, the fifth, is the antithesis of spiritual pride that Jesus is talking about earlier in the chapter, beginning at the very first verse. It is the petition meant to remind us that we still sin and we need to ask forgiveness. Now, this begs the question, though. Well, Mark, if God has forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future, which he has, do I still need to ask forgiveness as a believer? Well, the answer is unequivocally, yes. While God has forgiven you, if you're in Christ, of all of your sins, we still need to repent, confess, and seek forgiveness when we sin. Now, let me give you an example that's going to fall short, but it might help you understand. Let's just say for a moment, uh, let's just say my wife says one day, you know what, I'm going to forgive you right now of all of the sin that you ever do for the rest of our marriage. And let's say for some way she knows the future and she knows that I'm going to mess up a week from today and I'm going to get agitated and I'm going to, out of anger, yell at her and cause her such heartache. Let's just say that for, as an example, okay? But she says, I know that's going to happen and I've already forgiven you because I love you. And she would do that. She's such a wonderful help me. So when that happens a week from now, do I just say, oh, well, she forgave me. She already said she forgave me, so I'm good. Just go on about my life and just, just keep going like nothing happened. No, right? I hope you would say no. No, I would still go to her, right? You would think and go before her and repent and ask for forgiveness. It was wrong. I have sinned. Please forgive me. And then you would have a heart that breaks because you have, you have uh, displeased your own wife. How much more our own Father who is in heaven. So yes, he has forgiven us of our sins. The difference <clears throat> is that when we came to Christ, his forgiveness was for our justification. Once for all, all your sins. As believers... When we confess our sins, repent, and seek forgiveness, His forgiveness is for our sanctification, is for our cleansing and the purification of our conscience. And we need that, brothers and sisters. Confession of sin should be a regular part of a Christian's life. 1 John 1, 8, 9 says, If we say we have no sin, We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us 
our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The text there, if we confess our sins, it's in the active tense in the Greek. It's not in the perfect tense or the aorist tense, which could mean past tense or at a certain time, but it's in the active tense. And that's just a technical way of saying Paul is saying that this is an actively thing. If we are always confessing our sins in, in an active sense, it means you're always doing it. If we confess, if we are always confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's speaking to believers, speaking to believers. And brothers and sisters, this is a mark of a believer. A mark of a believer is that they're always confessing and always repenting, asking the Lord to forgive them. While there's no condemnation in Christ for those that are in Christ Jesus, it doesn't negate the fact that we need to live in a state of repentance of our sins. This was actually the first thesis in Martin Luther's 95 Theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation. Uh, He said, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent in Mark 4.17, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this word again in Matthew 4, it's used in the active tense, friends. It means when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says, always be repenting. That's what he's speaking about there. Prideful man does not need to seek repentance. This is the spirit of the fifth petition, that we would not be prideful and think, I don't need to repent of my sins, uh, but we need to be humble and to pray this petition from the heart. And the only way to do that, friends, is to have a humble heart, which only God can work in us through the Holy Spirit. The prideful Pharisee in Luke 18 did not pray the Lord's Prayer. He prayed the prayer of pride. I thank you, God, that I'm Uh, not like other people. I thank you that I'm not a swindler, unjust, not an adulterer. Thank you, God, that I'm so good. That is not a humble, regenerate heart. But the other one who prayed, prayer of repentance, is a humble heart. When we make this petition a part of our daily request to God, brothers and sisters, it keeps our hearts humble before God, acknowledging both to Him and to ourselves that we are still sinners. We still have a taint of sin, and we still need forgiveness. So, brothers and sisters, is this prayer part of your daily life? Jesus says, pray in this way. We are called to prayer. Is this prayer part of your daily life? Do you ask God to forgive you, to cleanse you of your sins? The very fact that Jesus gives this petition to us in the model prayer supposes that we actually still do have sin in our lives that we need to repent of. Well, perhaps you find it hard sometimes to pinpoint the sin which you need to ask forgiveness for. And if that's you or if you find yourself in that situation, that's a red flag that needs to be dealt with, friends. There's enough sin in our lives that we need to be able to identify and ask forgiveness for. But we have believers, we have so much sin 
in our lives and our hearts can lead us so astray so easily, our hearts can convince us that we're not so bad, that we're doing pretty good. We don't need to be in confession of sin. We don't need to ask for forgiveness of sin because we're doing, we're pretty good. Well, praise God, he uses what's called the ordinary means of grace to keep us humble. He uses ordinary means of grace to show us our sin, to show us the holiness of God, and to constantly bring us to repentance. Now, if you've never heard of that term, the ordinary means of grace, uh, they're not ordinary as in dull. They're just the regular means that God uses to dispense his grace to his people. Does that make sense? They're not extraordinary or or mystical. They're the ordinary means of grace. And it's vital to our salvation. God uses the ordinary means of grace not only to save his people, but also to keep them from falling. See, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Someone's truly saved. They will never fall away totally But God uses the ordinary means of grace to keep them from falling. So what are the ordinary means of grace? Well, our catechism outlines that. The ordinary means of grace are the word of God, both read and preached, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. All of these, it says in our confession, are made effectual to the elect for salvation. And God uses the church of Jesus Christ, which is called the pillar and the ground of truth in 1 Timothy, to dispense the means of grace, to practice the ordinances, to preach the word of God. God uses these means of grace to keep us humble, to show us our sins so we can go to him in confession. Now, some people may say, well, I don't want to live a life like that, always repenting, always feeling bad for my sins. But friends, the Apostle Peter in chapter 3 of Acts says that when you do repent of your sins, there comes a time of refreshing. That's the beauty of confession. If you have the view of, you know what, I just don't want to be always feeling bad about my sin, so I don't think I need to be confessing and repenting, you have the wrong view of God, friends. When we realize that we have erred from God and His commands, and we go to Him in confession and faith, The Bible says that you are refreshed, you are cleansed. Don't you want that? Don't you love God enough to know he's forgiven you of your sins and you want to be cleansed from your sin? You want to kill the remaining sin in you? Do you not have that heart? That's what it does. It cleanses us. It refreshes us. So the question to you then is, are you using diligently the ordinary means of grace to kill your sin do you read the word of god on your own do you study the scriptures and not just listen to sermons sermons are great but you got to study the word of god yourself brothers and sisters do you pay honor to god by giving him your ears when the preaching of the word is set forth in the church is going to church where god dispenses the means of grace a priority in your life you see friends when we are diligent to practice god's ordinary means of grace 
then we will grow in means of sanctification. We will grow in, in uh, refreshing. We will grow in our conformance to Christ. And the vice versa goes to the other side. When we're negligent in practicing the ordinary means of grace, when we stop reading and studying the Word, when we put prayer as, uh, in the back burner, when we take church as an option, when we put all the means of grace as a low priority in your life, don't be surprised when you start slipping and when you start backpedaling in your walk. Don't be surprised when your heart starts to get full of pride and you notice yourself not repenting of your sins and you notice yourself starting to sin more outwardly and those besetting sins start to come back in your heart. Don't be surprised. God uses this setting right here. This is a redemptive work of Christ right here each Lord's day. The Spirit of God moves in such a special way when the people gather together on His holy day with the preaching and also the fellowship as we encourage one another and exhort one another. That is a means of grace that God uses for your good and for His glory. Listen, I've seen enough to know that if your engagement in the local church lacks, if your engagement, well, I know this, in a Bible, preaching, solid church. This is not the only one. There are many out there. But your engagement in the local church, I've seen it enough with people, it usually is in direct proportion to your own sanctification. The more you miss church, either physically, or you can miss church mentally, because you can be here physically, but your mind's on tomorrow. Your mind's on next week. Your mind's on the things that went bad this past week. If you miss church physically, regularly, or mentally, you become less aware of your sin. You become less aware and sensitive to your sin, and then the pride in the heart starts to grow. We must be engaged in the ordinary means of grace so that we can stay sensitive to sin and stay humble. And so this petition becomes a regular part of our prayer life, not in simply word, but from the heart. Uh, in our confession in chapter 11, verse 5, says this, God continues to forgive the sins of those he justified. Praise God. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and listen to this, and in that condition, they usually do not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. In other words, the confession is saying even though that nobody can, if they're in Christ, they can't fully fall away, they can sin and cause displeasure, grieve the Holy Spirit, and in that condition, they usually do not have the light of, of God's countenance. You know what I'm, you're not walking in peace, you're not walking in joy, and you won't have it until you humble yourself, beg pardon, and renew your faith in repentance. This is like King David in Psalm 32 when he said about his sin in verse 3, when I kept silence about my sin. My body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, 
your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away with the fever heat of summer. I, finally, acknowledge my sin to you. You see, he kept silent about his sin. He didn't, as a believer, he didn't flee to Christ with his sin. And the countenance of God's glory was lifted from him. And he said, when I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the sin of my guilt. Praise God. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. So when we pray this petition, we are acknowledging and confessing to God that we still sin and we need continual forgiveness of our sins. Last point, this will come quicker. When we pray this petition, we're acknowledging God's character, his very essence, that he is merciful and he is willing to forgive. The very fact that Jesus provides this petition in his model prayer shows that, that God is willing and able to forgive you of your sins. He would not give us this petition if he was not willing to forgive you of your sins. God's mercy, friends, the very heart of his essence is that he is merciful. Exodus 34, God says this of himself. He says, The Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is rich in mercy, it says in Ephesians 2, 4. Paul refers to God as the Father of all mercies, 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Jonah fled to Tarshish, not because he feared the people of Nineveh, but because he knew that God was a gracious and merciful God, he says, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He knew God was merciful and he hated those in Nineveh. That's why he didn't want to go to them because he knew God would be merciful to them. Jesus tells us in Luke six thirty six to be merciful just as your father is merciful. We are encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace, friends, with confidence that we may receive mercy and find help in the time of need. Hebrews 4.16 So brothers and sisters, when you sin, when you do sin, you know you messed up. You fall short of, you've fallen short of the glory of God. What do you do? Do you avoid God? Friends, that's the last thing you need to do. What you're saying when you avoid God, you're saying you don't believe his word, that he is merciful, ready and willing to forgive. When you avoid God, when you've messed up, when you've sinned, you're saying that you need to do some sort of work to get it right before you come back to God. And that's not how God operates. No, brothers and sisters, when you sin and fall short again and again and again, don't withdraw from him. Flee to him. 
Cling to Him. Go to Him in repentance, confession, and seek, he, seek His forgiveness. And He is ready. He is willing and ready to forgive you again and again and again. Jesus said in John six thirty seven that all the Father gives to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will in no wise cast away. That's both in a salvific way, but it's also in his own children. If you're a child of God and you messed up again the same sin, and you think, wow, I keep messing up the same sin over and over again, guess what? Welcome to the club, okay? Because we all have these besetting sins, but don't avoid God. Run to Him. Keep running to Him. Admit it that you can't do it anymore. You keep messing up. Forgive me, Lord. Help me. And He is faithful and willing to you forgive you of all of your sins. He is ready. And to the believer, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Your sin has been totally paid for. This should move our hearts to love him, to seek to, to rid ourselves of sin. But when we do sin, we seek his forgiveness. Father, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us so that we could be cleansed and have a time of refreshing. I want to conclude by asking you a simple question. Is your life marked by a continual confession of sin, seeking the Lord for his forgiveness? While this will always be imperfect, this is a mark of a believer. Young person, children, is that your life? Is your life marked by a continual sensitivity to your sin, a continual confession of your sin, and seeking the Lord for His forgiveness. Those that think they are good and righteous, Jesus says, they have no need for repentance. But He came to call sinners to repentance. Do you see yourself as a sinner, young people? If your life consists of a continual deflection of sin, listen to me. If your life consists of a continual deflection of sin, never owning up and admitting that you've erred, that you've sinned, and you're not willing to confess your sins to others or even to God without somebody having to force you to do that, you very well, friends, may not be saved. It's either that or you're in a state of rebellion as a believer, a state of rebellion towards God, and you will come under severe discipline. God and his love for you and for the sake of his own name will not allow his child to linger long in that sort of rebellion. If you are a believer who keeps falling into sin, perhaps you beat yourself up about it and you punish yourself more than God. If you're in Christ, again, don't run from Him. Run to Him. 
We should never make light of our sin. I'm not saying that. It's because of your sin that your dear Savior suffered the wrath of God upon the cross. But continue to run to him. He will, that which he started, he will perfect. Have faith in God. Don't have faith in yourself. You're going to fail. But have faith in God that he will help you in your time of need. He will sanctify you. He will make you more like Christ, and it may not come in the time that you want, friends. But praise God, if that's your heart, praise God that God gave you that regenerate heart, that you care that much about your sin, that you're willing to continually confess it, repent it, and forsake it because you know it is displeasing to God. We have have a wonderful, a merciful Savior, do we not? Aren't you so thankful that he was so merciful to you because of God is rich in his mercy and love? Aren't you glad because of his kindness that he didn't leave you in your sin and that he opened your eyes and opened up your heart to the gospel and that you came to him? It's all of grace. Let's continue to walk by faith. Let's continue to walk not by sight, but by seeking him, by making our daily prayer. Forgive us of our debts, Lord as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, that you have met our greatest need, that you have forgiven us of our sins, Lord, the the sins that we deserve the wrath of God for to be poured out upon us. You, Lord, have lived the life that we could never live and died the death uh, that we deserve under the wrath of our Father. Help us, God, to continually be sensitive to our sin, Lord, that we would forsake them and that we would walk in confidence knowing that you have not given us any form of condemnation, Lord, but that you are growing us in grace. Lord, I pray if there's any here that are not in Christ, those, Lord, that have deflected their sin, that have not owned their sin debt, God, I pray that you would use this message right now, God, to open up their hearts and minds to the gospel, that they would forsake their their thinking, their sin. They would forsake uh, their errant thinking that they have done good enough things to go to heaven, God, and you would bring them to repentance and faith that there might be times of refreshing. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.